Drew Tales Live on PPM-TV is made possible through the generous support of Artists Collaborative Theatre of New England, Act One, presenting outstanding performances of Stories with Heart at the West End Studio Theatre in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. For further information, contact 603-300-2986 or on the web at act1nh.org. With additional support from Pat Spaulding, who really wants to know, hey, what's your story? I can't believe I'm 92, and, but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And that's what we do when we come to, to, to Jonesboro. We listen. We listen. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. Which is a, you know, a good lesson. The first L is listening. And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. But listening and learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, need to tell to somebody you love. And now is the time to do it. Go home and tell stories. And tell each one with love, ending with, I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98, here in New Hampshire. Thanks to everyone watching and listening, and especially to our studio audience. See you here. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide people with an encouraging space in which to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity. Using on-stage, TV, radio, and public venues, and offering workshops in the art and practice of storytelling, we aim to help people bridge differences and build understanding and respect for all. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills with our monthly workshops and other assistance to tellers, this is not a competition. We have no ranking, scoring, or judging at all. Our belief is that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together, and that is why we're here. 
Our shows usually have a theme to help get people's minds turning on what they have to share on a certain subject. And tonight's theme is mishaps and fiascos. Now, this is a theme that we feel sure everyone does have a story to tell, though maybe not everyone is willing to tell the such, this, this such a story, right? Um, we actually had a little brainstorm ahead of time. The storm knocked out the internet for many of us, myself included, but we, uh, so we had an actual human brain, you know, storm session. When we came up with other things that you could call these events, such as catastrophe, Disaster, accident, mix-up, cataclysm, calamity, snafu, or oopsie-daisy. <laughs> Any of these sound familiar to folks? I'm sure they do. We have tonight five tellers who have said yes, they will share their mishap with you. Um, we are happy to have Emily Spaulding, Dane Peters, I, Amy Antonucci, will get up and tell one. Michael Lang and Susan Lang. Not related, believe it or not. We checked. Um, they'll each have a 10-minute limit for their story. And tonight, we have a special MC. Pat Spaulding is off twirling her baton, given that it is actually Halloween night. She had definite other plans. So David Frainer will introduce each storyteller to you. And after the stories, there will be an interview of Susan Lang that David will conduct. But first, for the stories, let's welcome David Frainer to introduce our first teller. Thank you, Amy. Emily Spaulding went to college on a baton twirling scholarship worked as a cable TV interviewer, and became a general manager. She met her husband in New York City during Easter vacation. Emily's great pleasure is to tell and hear true tales. She grew up in small southern towns. She says, you'll figure that out as soon as you hear me speak. <clears throat> she notes that being from a small southern town, she felt backward and wanted to feel sophisticated. On a sightseeing trip to New York City when single, the most interesting sight she saw was Dick, now her husband. They moved to Brooklyn and had two girls ages three and two when this story takes place. But when worldliness still didn't come, she pretended sophistication by always having the answer, right or wrong, which is what caused what she calls my Mishap, and that's the title of her story, My Mishap. Emily, come on up. Well, it was hard living in Brooklyn in an apartment, a rent-controlled apartment on the second floor, because when we were little, you would just go out and play in the yard. There was no yard to play in in Brooklyn Heights. Well, our two grandmothers, now Dick is from the north, so the northern grandmother and my mother, the southern grandmother, decided it really was hard and we weren't going to make it if they didn't do something. So they decided, they called up one day and Dick answered the phone. They said, we're going to come and stay in your little apartment and take care of those two girls for a month. And you can go anywhere you want on a romantic getaway. I think they really thought we weren't going to make it. So before Dick had hung up the phone, I was packed and ready to go. <laughs> and then we tried to decide, well, where should we go? Well, I said, you know, Europe would be good. That's far enough that they won't even call us because it would be too expensive. And we certainly wouldn't have to come home. But my real reason was that I thought maybe I'd pick up a little sophistication if I got to go to Europe. And so that's what we did. And the first place we went was Madrid, and we were there for two or three days. And then what I was really looking forward to was going to Paris, seeing the lights of Paris. I was so excited. And we went up to the... Uh, it was Air France ticket counter, 
And now I had taken one year of French, and so I thought I should practice it, and he would be impressed and, you know, that sort of thing. And so I said, oh, bonjour, monsieur, de billet à Paris. We are the Spaldings, S-P. Well, he stopped me right there, and since I had spoken French, he said in perfect English, yes, we have your reservation, but... There is a huge strike in Paris. This was 1969. And he said, the airlines and I have decided we can fly you in, but not out. And we are not giving any tickets unless we have a really good reason. And I said, well, you know, we live in New York. We're New Yorkers. I don't know how he would believe that with my accent, but anyway, I said, we have strikes all the time. We know just what to do. Don't worry about us. We'll just be fine. He said, no, you have to have a really good reason. And I said, well, I have got two babies at home, and I wasn't putting this on, and I just got to get away because I, I don't know if I can keep doing this, and the grandmothers are there, and I need to have this trip. And he said, I'm a father, here are your tickets. <laughs> but he did not let go of them. He had one more thing to say. And he said, now, when things are really bad over there during this strike, he said, I want you to remember this moment and that neither the airline nor I wanted you to go. And I said, oh, okay, fine, that's good. And we went up and we got on the plane. And when we got on the plane, Dick said to me, why do you think on this 737 that there are only six people? Well, having an answer for everything. I said, you know, in Europe, they take their vacations in August, and this is the spring, so this is off-season. Well, then we landed in Paris. It was hard to find a taxi, but finally we got one, and we started out, and Dick said, why do you think that every building is closed with a f fermé, uh, whatever it is in French, sign on the door? And I said, well, it's got to be a holiday. Everything closes when there's a holiday. Well, pretty soon we went over the Seine River on a bridge and we got to the West Bank. Now, it seems like the man at the desk had said something about the West Bank in the strike. And sure enough, when we got there, there were students running everywhere, and they were yelling and screaming. In fact, they were rocking cars back and forth, and they would turn them over, and one of them, they had even put a match in the gas tank, and it had blown up, and they were breaking windows. But what I remember the most was this weird cry and yell and screams that they were doing in the laughing. Now, our taxi went right through the middle of all of this, and I thought, please, God, don't let them choose our taxi and turn us over and set us on fire. And fortunately, they didn't. It must be if you were local, you were okay. I don't know, and the taxi was. And we turned off just about two blocks away from this, and we were staying in a house on the West Bank. And the taxi said, now, quick, vite, vite. And he was hurrying to get out of there, and we ran up to the door and knocked on the door, and Dick ran the bell, and we were standing there waiting. And no one came to the door, and no one answered. And I thought, what have I done, gotten us into this? Nobody's going to open their door. What are we going to do? But then I saw a curtain moving. Somebody was in there. So I went up to the door and I said, We're the Spaldings. We're the people you have a reservation. Open the door. And a woman did. She said, Feet, feet. And we jumped inside and she put three locks on that door. And she said, Well, I didn't think anybody would come during the, the big strike. And. She said, but I'm glad you're here, and, you know, I'll show you to your room, and I'll fix you a wonderful dinner. And she did. But, you know, I can't remember a single thing we ate for dinner because I was trying to sort of think, how are we going to get out of this fix? Well, after dinner, now, although it was my fault, I turned to Dick, and I said, Dick, you have got to do something. Get us out of here. Do something. 
Well, that was kind of normal, actually. And he said, okay, now, tomorrow I'm going to go to the train station and I'm going to get his tickets anywhere out of here. We were going to Germany where my sister was and her husband were stationed in the Army. And he said, either they are anywhere. And that was good. And the next morning after breakfast, which I also don't remember what we had, he went and he went to the station. And about two hours later, he came back and he walked in like this. Well, you know what that meant. He hadn't gotten the tickets. But then he said, because he's sort of a tease, but I have good news. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, there was a man standing in the shadows. The station was all barricaded, no trains. And he said, psst. And I said, me? He said, yeah, come over here. He said, I can take you to the border and get you out of here if you just give me the money right now. And I'm thinking, you didn't give him money, a stranger. He's not going to show up. But I didn't say anything because this was our romantic getaway together. <laughs> so the next day we started out, and it looked like a war zone. It looked like bombs had been set. But there were no people out because they must have stayed out all night. They must have been sleeping. And we got to the station. It was still barricaded. and But there was the guy in the shadows. I couldn't believe it. Psst, he said. My van is over here. Now, there was a Peugeot. It was dented. It was dirty. And it looked beautiful. <laughs> and he said, hop in. We're going to go to the border, to the train, and you can, you can get a train right straight to Germany. And so we got in, trusting him. You know, he could have taken us anywhere for what we knew. And he went hurtling along, and we drove and drove and drove until it was dark. But there was a little moon up in the sky, so you could kind of see. And he came to this empty space, just dirt, no, and trees, and no people or buildings or anything. And he said, get out here. And we're like, well, well then what are we going to do? And he said, well, just run down that little dirt road, and you'll come to a train station eventually. Well, <laughs> what could we do? So we're, we're out, and we're walking really fast. And I'm thinking... I got us into this by being so, trying to be so sophisticated. You know, we're probably going to be robbed. Or maybe we're going to be kidnapped. Or maybe we're going to be killed and it's my fault. I felt terrible. I would have felt more terrible if that happened. But, and Dick said, look, look, there's, I think there's a light up there. And we started running and there was a train that said Germany on it. And the engine was already started, like it was about to leave. And so we ran up the steps and we sat down in this glass compartment and we said, Phew. but we shouldn't have because right then, this guy in a military uniform, he was scary looking in boots up to his knees. And he clicked his heels and he said, B.A.? And I said, well, we don't have any B.A. But, and he clicked his heels again and he said, passports. Well, we had passports. So we gave him the passports and he looked at them and he looked at us. I thought it was a long time, but it was probably about a minute. And then he reached in his belt and he pulled out the B.A., two tickets, and he punched them and he gave them to us. He didn't smile or anything, and he clicked his heels and he turned around and he went out in the hallway and started walking away, and the train started. It sounded beautiful. We were on our way to Germany. Well, now, trying to put a good spin on this, I said, Dick, we may not have seen the lights of Paris, but we are about to see the lights of Germany. <laughs> and you know what he said? He said, lights of Germany? Well, at that minute, I thought, you know, maybe it's time for me to stop trying so hard to be sophisticated. Look what it got us into. And at that, from that moment on, I decided I was just going to be a red clay girl. And surely that was as good as anything else. So I would like to thank y'all for coming and sharing this story with me now that I'm a red clay girl. Thank you. Dane Peters lives with his wife Chris in Greenland, New Hampshire. 
a long, long time ago, he ran two schools and spent most of his career in middle school education. He's written more than 100 articles and published in more than 30 publications about his experiences in education. In retirement, he continues to consult with schools throughout the country, is the vice president of the Seacoast Repertory Board of Trustees, and is a member of Senior Moments, an acting troupe for senior citizens, and he's a storyteller. Dane's story tonight is titled, From Takeoff to Landing. Dane notes, I was flying high in college, but after a mishap, I took off again in the Marine Corps with unexpected turbulence and queasy landing. Sharing my adventures along the way paid high dividends in spite of steep costs. So Dane, coming down or up? It's good to be here to tell my story. And that's some twists and turns towards some mishaps. But it all started, if, if, if you haven't seen it yet, you'd get a good sense of where I'm coming from in setting the stage is Ken Burns's Vietnam. Because it was August 25th, 1968, when I was about to, it was the summer before my junior year in college, where I was an elementary education major. And I just had this burning desire to fly a plane. I for the longest time. And so I made up my mind, I picked up the phone, and called the office at Johnny Cake Airport, which is in Harlington, Connecticut. And I said, I want to fly. So I made an appointment. And I went to the airstrip this one day, and there I was introduced to a Cessna 150, which is a two-seat airplane, a high wing. You still see them around. and there's a passenger side on the right-hand side and a pilot side, and I sat on the pilot side, and the instructor sat in the passenger side. And he basically talked me through everything, and I was just so excited. I mean, I'm really doing this. Sure enough, we take off, and we're up in the air, and I'm flying around, and I'm in control. Well, we're up around 2,000 feet, and I'm as high as I've ever been. Now, granted, this is 1968, not that kind of high. <laughs> but I was 2,000 feet. I was altitude high. And I, it was everything that I had imagined it to be. I felt like a bird. We landed, and then eventually I did my next 10 hours, because you need 10 hours in order to solo the plane without the instructor. And I got in the plane, and he said, go ahead, Dane, take off. And I did, and basically you just loop around, you take off and you land, you take off and you land. And it went beautifully. Well, the next thing that was to happen is that he now introduces me to navigating and steep turns and beyond the rudiments of flying. And we did that, and all of a sudden it comes time where we're supposed to do our cross country, which means that you're going to take off from Johnny Cake and go and land at another airport somewhere. Well, he was going to take me to Martha's Vineyard on my cross country. I was so excited. My goodness, we're going to fly over water. It's just going to be great. Well, sure enough, that morning comes. It was very chilly, very cold. And I walk into the office. He says, go ahead, go out, start up the plane, and I'll, I'll be out shortly. And I did. I started up the plane, but I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and isn't coming out. So I walk back into the office and I say, hey, Ron, um, I, is everything okay? He says, what are you doing here? He could hear the buzzing of the engine of the plane. He says, well, why, why aren't you in the plane? I said, but I, all of a sudden we heard this loud crash. The plane taxied itself into the nose of a brand new twin engine Aztec airplane brand new and it just crunched it up it totaled it and you know who owned it the owner of the airport and he says what did you do how could you be so stupid you can't just leave a plane 
And I said, well, I know it now, but I didn't then. I thought you could just get out. And he said, and I said, so does that mean we're not going to Martha's Vineyard? He said, just leave, just leave. And I did. And I thought, well, that's it. No more flying. Well, a week went by, and I get a phone call, and he says, all right, you ready? We're going on that cross country. And there, was, there were no repercussions, nothing. The insurance took care of everything. And it was just one of the mishaps that are fiascos that can happen when you're teaching people to fly. Well, we went out to Martha's Vineyard, and it was so great. And I actually landed at another airport. 40 hours go by, 20 dual, 20 solo. And I went and took my written test and my flying test, and I got my license. Well, by this time, I was at Central Connecticut State University. That's where I was going to college, which isn't far from Hartford, Connecticut. And I took a job at Brainerd Airport, which is just outside of Hartford. And I was pumping gas into airplanes. But the best part was I could rent a plane for $18 an hour wet, meaning you didn't have to pay for the gas. And if I wanted any instruction, it would be another $8. And I thought, man, this is just living. So I just was flying in different planes. I was taking my buddies up. One of the best things I did was I took my dad up because I didn't tell him. I, I didn't tell my mother and father that I was getting my license. I just did it on my own. And he was so great. He was so excited about doing this with his younger son. Well, and I thought, I, I got to keep flying. And I, wa I was determined that I was going to be a pilot, a commercial pilot. And so I came up with this brilliant idea toward the end of 68, beginning of 69. And I said, I know what I can do. I can go and fly, and they'll pay me to fly. I went and enlisted in the Marine Corps with the promise that I would be a pilot. I thought, man, I got this all figured out. And again, this is 1969. A lot's going on at that time. But that was the farthest thing from my mind. Sure enough, I was commissioned a second lieutenant when I graduated. And I went home on leave. My wife and I got married at that time. And her parents thought I was absolutely dingy. I mean, it, what was she doing marrying this guy who joined the Marine Corps during this Vietnam War? Nevertheless, we went down to Pensacola, Florida, and that's where Marines and Navy Air people are indoctrinated into flying. And, but the first thing you do is I went and I got my flight physical. And the flight surgeon came over to me after, and he said to me, he said, I'm sorry, Lieutenant, but you're not going to be able to fly. What, what, what do you mean? No, they promised me. He said, nah, your eyes are 20-40. They must be 20-20 in order to be a pilot. But I, you, you can't. They promised me. He said, you're going to have to talk that over with your commanding officer. And I did. I went directly to him, and I said, sir, yeah, I was promised that I could fly. And he said, well, Lieutenant, you've got two choices. One, you can sit in the back seat of an F-4 and be a Rio or a radar intercept operator, or you can be assigned to the infantry. Really? <laughs> That's not a choice. <laughs> so I said, fine, I'll sit in the back seat so long as I'm flying. So I, my next duty station, my wife and I went to Glencoe, Georgia. And that's where they put you in the back of about a 10-passenger, it's like a Learjet kind of, but it's like you're in this dark tunnel. And you sit in front of a radar console, and you learn how to use the radar and direct the pilot so that you get in back of the bogey, the bad guy. And so then the pilot can take over when he gets a visual on the bogey. And from the first flight to the last flight, even in my orientation flight back in Pensacola, I just, because of the G-forces, the gravitational forces, like it's like riding a wild roller coaster, I just barfed my guts out constantly. So now I'm in the back of this tube and rolling all around, 
And I th it just kept going and going. Well, they put me on medication, scopolamine and dexedrine. And, and it worked. Took the medication an hour before the flight that I had, and then I was fine. But the one problem was is that sometimes the flight is canceled because of bad weather, and I'm on dexedrine. It's like taking 20 cups of coffee. <laughs> Nevertheless, and I was losing weight, and, but I got through it. Then I was assigned to my first squadron, which was at the Marine Corps Air Station in Yuma, Arizona. And now I'm in the back of an F-4, and I mean, it's just neat. This thing is amazing. If you watch Vietnam, Ken Burns' Vietnam, the planes that you see dropping bombs or fighting, those are basically F-4, F F-4s. But from the first flight to my last flight, I mean, I had all kinds of str strategy in terms of where I put the sick sack because it was inevitable. Whether I ate or I didn't eat, I, I didn't take the medicine anymore. I mean, I just pulled it out. You know, I get into the flight about 10 minutes and I'm doing my thing. And I hear the, the my, and my uh, earpiece click. The pilot turns it off because he doesn't want to hear that. <laughs> and, but... Finally, 30 hours go by flying in, in the F-4. My commanding officer says to me, Lieutenant, this, we can't continue this because uh, you can't perform your mission. And I said, yeah, you're right. I, I understand that. And he said, so what I'm going to do is assign you to doing administrative duties, which you're doing already now when you're not, when you're not a Rio, and you're going to go to a, a LAM battalion. And I... Uh, which is a light anti-aircraft missile battalion, and I was assigned to that. And then eventually I got out of the Marine Corps, and I went to my first school assignment, which was a boarding school, and I met up with Mike. And I'm just about done. And Mike was a seventh grader who was a boarder at the school, and he was enamored with flying. And he wanted, and he wanted to go flying with me, and there was a dirt strip right next to the school where I was at. And sure enough, I took him up, and... That was the height of his life. Well, about a year ago, I got an email from Mike. He's 42, two children who are in aeronautical engineering, and he's a pilot. And that made it all worth it. Thank you. Amy Antonucci is a founding member of True Tales Live and the True Tales Live Storyteller Coaching Program. Amy is co-owner of the Living Land Permaculture Homestead in Barrington, New Hampshire, where she tends plants, animals, and insects. From 2008 to 2015, <clears throat> she also tended to her aging father. It was a time of adventures and misadventures mishaps and fiascos. Tonight's story is one of many she accumulated during that time of caring for her aging father. It took place <clears throat> over Thanksgiving a few years back and she tells me it would also have gone well with our theme Best Laid Plans. The title of her story Thanks for the Fiasco. Come on over Amy. Amy, Amy, Amy. I jumped up, disoriented. Where, what, wh huh? I registered, cold, dark, someone calling my name. It started to come back to me. I was in my bedroom. It was a holiday weekend, and that was my father's voice yelling for me. But wait, how did we get here? As an organizer, a planner, a list maker, holidays with my messy family were always a challenge. In fact, as an adult, I rarely spent Thanksgiving with them. But since my mother had died uh, about six years before, my partner Steve and I had spent every Thanksgiving with my dad. 
The first few years, he took the train up from Massachusetts to New Hampshire, and I'd pick him up at the station for the long weekend. Then one year, he got off the train, looked at me, clutching his chest, gasping, and said, oh, Amy, I didn't think you'd come to meet me. I said, huh? I was baffled. I am not the spacey, unreliable one in the family. I said, have I ever failed to pick you up when I said I would? He didn't really seem to have an answer, and it started to occur to me that he couldn't remember the plans that we had made. This was around the time that I started to feel sure he did have some sort of dementia. I spoke to his doctors, and they did not agree with me yet, but they didn't see them at moments like this, confused, out of his routine, agitated. After that, doctor's orders or not, I went down to fetch him to come up for Thanksgiving. And in the ever-changing landscape of my father's memory issues, there was a whole other level of planning needed for everything that we did. Even then, no matter what I did and how much I tried to anticipate every possibility, we never really knew how things would unfold. By 2014, my father's memory issues had been diagnosed, and he had moved to assisted living in Boston. As was our current normal, I left Wednesday afternoon to pick him up despite a steady snow. I actually did not get far before I had to give up and turn around on the slippery, slippery roads despite our plans. It was a pretty wet, heavy snow coming down. And in fact, by nightfall, we had lost power out in the woods where we live. The phone still worked, so I could continue to get anxious calls from my father, who also did not like changes in plans. The next morning, we still had no electricity. However, it was clear, it was sunny, things, roads were cleared again, and the power was on the next town over where Steve's family lived, and that's where we were going to have dinner anyway. So I also really didn't like the idea of my father being alone on Thanksgiving and us changing our plans. So I went down, and I got him, and I brought him up. And the drive was fine, and dinner was lovely. But getting back that evening, already kind of exhausted, I was dismayed to find the lights were still off. When my father came to stay, we had a system. He stayed in our guest room on the bottom floor of the house. It was across from a bathroom, and I set up a series of night lights so if he woke up, or when he woke up in the middle of the night, he could quickly figure out where he was and follow them to the bathroom. He did have, after all, an 84-year-old bladder at this point. But it was cold and dark in that part of the house now. I needed a new plan. Our wood stove worked just fine, so I set up a sleeping area across from it, and I gave him a flashlight, and I drilled him on, on you know, I, all right, pick up the flashlight, turn it on. Do it again, Dad, pick up the flashlight and turn it on. So he, he did this, uh, you know, these exercises for a while, and it seemed like he was grasping it. However, through all the prep and the planning and the commotion, let's call it at this point, he was displaying some lack of understanding our situation. He'd say to me, hey, Amy, you know, I'm a, little, I'm a little hungry. Could you make me some toast with butter melted on it? And I would say, no, Dad, we don't have any power, so I can't do that. Oh, right, right. I, I, I think you told me that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. A few minutes later, hey, Amy, you know, it's a little dark in here. Could we turn on some more lights? I'd say, no, Dad. We have no electricity, so we can't turn any more lights. Oh, right. Yeah, I think I might have known that. Yeah, then you're right. You're right. A few minutes later. Hey, Amy, I'm kind of bored. Could you turn on the TV for me to watch? And then we'd be back to the toast. So it was with some trepidation that I finally did head up to bed late at night, a little frustrated but very exhausted. Steve and I sleep in a loft that looks out over 
the main living room, which is where my father was, so I felt like I was still kind of keeping an eye on things. I whispered to Steve in bed, this is a nightmare. There is no power, and my father is in the living room. How did I get us into this? He was kind enough not to answer that question. But I said, we'll wake up with power, and we'll get back on track. It's going to be okay. Instead, when I did wake up, it was to my name being called loudly over and over, Amy, Amy, Amy. It's totally dark. I jumped up. I was confused. I stumbled, but I grabbed a flashlight. I realized it was my father's voice, and I started rushing towards it. Coming down the stairs, I could see he was not in the living room. I found him around the corner in our office. He was sitting in a chair, an office chair, right in front of Steve's computer, like he was ready to get to work any second, but it was pitch black. I approached him with a light, I showed my light on, I said, Dad, what are you doing here? And he looked up at me wide-eyed and he said, I have no idea. I said, why didn't you use your flashlight? And he said, that would have been a really good idea. Then I saw the light dawn in his eyes, and he exclaimed, the bathroom, I'm here because I need the bathroom. Now, I need the bathroom now. So we jumped up, and I had the flashlight, and we started in the direction, but we didn't quite make it. I was horrified and pained on his behalf. I anticipated how he was going to feel, embarrassed and shamed. We were never like an uninhibited, leave the bathroom door open kind of a family. And I wished that at least I were a son instead of a daughter. It felt like that would be less excruciating. But I underestimated my father's new shamelessness, something that had been shifting along with his memory. I had not previously appreciated this characteristic in him. In fact, I had been wishing he cared what people thought of the state of the house or whether or not he washed his clothes or did he take a shower or brush his teeth or comb his hair. But at that moment, it was the best gift he could have given me. What I thought was going to be horribly awkward just wasn't. Jesus Christ, he yelled, Jesus Christ, look at what happened. Yeah, I, I see, Dad. Well, that's great. That's just great, he said. He was angry. He was shocked. But he was not in the least embarrassed. And so he relieved me of that burden, too. Before I had much time to be grateful, though, another issue occurred to us. Without any power or laundry or water, we couldn't really clean up very well from this. I brought him a towel, some bottled water, and his bag so he could change. He handed me his wet clothes. What was I going to do with them? Well, I hung them by the fire so they could at least dry off before I, I put them in a bag. At which point, he informed me, Amy, I don't think I brought any other pants. But you were coming for three days, four nights. Why wouldn't you pack at least one more pair of pants? I don't know. I didn't think I needed them. I felt the urge to argue with him, but managed to rein myself in. Well, that's okay. It's late. You don't really need pants for sleeping, right? Just go back to bed. We'll, we'll figure this out in the morning. I expect no one else is as surprised as I was that we woke up that morning with no power still at the house. And now we had another topic to forget and revisit. We had the toast, we had more light, we had the TV, and now we had the pants. He would go over and pick them up to put on, and I would say, no, 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 Dad, you can't use those. Well, why not? Well, you peed on them. No, I wouldn't do that. And he'd take them and he'd smell them and he'd say, Amy, I peed on them. Why did I do that? And then we'd be back to the toast. After a few rounds of this, though, I had a realization. If he couldn't remember what happened to those pants, why did I trust him in saying he brought no others? 
this is the sort of thing that happens sometimes. Your, your mind is so stressed that you forget that he can't remember. I found his bag, I rifled, rifled through it, and Trump triumphantly found another pair of pants. Then at least my ongoing nightmare did not involve my father in his underwear. Still, enough was enough. Now that he was dressed, we could take him out for a nice dinner where they recovered from the storm and bring him back to his assisted living in Boston. Coming home, I thought about how crazy it was of me to bring him up to our house out of his regular environment in the middle of a blackout. I knew I needed to be more realistic and pace myself as a caregiver or I was going to burn out fast. I apologized to Steve and vowed never again. And while I still stand by that lesson, my father died before the next Thanksgiving came around. And it was actually a comfort to know that I had tried so hard and spent that time with him and even got another wild story out of it. Even my organizer self had to admit that it was this one time worth the chaos. Thank you. Michael Lang is a storyteller, a musician, and author from Durham, New Hampshire. After earning an undergraduate degree in outdoor education, he spent most of a decade working as a ropes course facilitator and wilderness guide. In 2011, he founded the Coyotes Inkwell and now entertains and educates audiences of all ages through songs and stories. He recently published his first book for school-aged children, The Wizard and the Fairies, which can be found on the writing page of coyotesinc.com. Michael is currently working on a second book in his Draw Your Own Story children's series. Tonight's story, We Don't Have the Power, is about a fiasco surrounding a problem that he had to solve while attending the Advanced Space Academy during his senior year in high school. So, Mike, come on up. Thank you for having me tonight. Aye, Captain, but we don't have the power, and you can't change the laws of physics. Montgomery Scott, Chief Engineer of the Starship Enterprise. As I stepped through the open hatchway, our instructor handed me a large white binder. The cover of it read, International Space Station, Pilot Track. It was filled with all the procedures I was supposed to accomplish in the next three hours. My teammates and I shuffled our way into the simulator. We were all dressed in our NASA blue jumpsuits. It was our final mission. Our week together at the Advanced Space Academy was coming to an end. I was one of the oldest members of Team Gagarin, a senior in high school. I had just turned 18. It's hard to believe that I was actually getting college credit while acting out my childhood dream of being an astronaut. My mother deserves some of the credit for my love of outer space and space exploration. After all, she was the one who would wake me and my older brothers in the pre-dawn hours any time a shuttle was going to be launched on television. Star Trek, however, deserves at least an equal amount. I grew up watching The Next Generation, but, before you stone me, we also had the original films starring the classic cast of the show. Scotty was one of the characters who left a big impression on me as a child. And as I took my seat on the space shuttle, space station simulator, it was hard not to think that I was on a Star Trek set. Everywhere I looked, there were computers and consoles, there were buttons and switches, and most of them were just props. They weren't actually wired to anything. Our instructor sat in the corner like a director. He was the one actually controlling the script triggering the events that surrounded us, the consequences of our actions, or our lack of action. As the pilot, it was my job, first of all, to switch our power from batteries to solar array. Well, I sat down at the computer, punched in a few codes, job done. I moved on to my next task. It was three or four assignments later, 
when I found myself staring at the computer, trying to find something, I noticed a telltale flash, a sign that something had just changed on this screen. I had no idea what it was, but now I was staring like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, intent for any sign of movement that would betray the location of my prey. The screen flashed again, and this time I saw it. Power level, 50%. Well, that can't be good. I stared at that number. 50, 50, 49. I reached for the nearest headset. Houston, we have a problem. A moment later, I heard a voice crackling in the earpiece. What's your problem, Space Station? Oh, not this guy. I had to deal with him during our last mission. Him and his incompetence while I was flying the space shuttle. <sighs> I quickly tried to explain the problem. I even asked him to look at his screen just to make sure I wasn't seeing things. Together we stared until 48 turned to 47. Did you see it? Yeah, I saw it. Okay, what do we do? There was a moment of silence. and In my imagination, I was thinking that Maybe he was rifling through technical manuals and looking up procedures, and then his voice crackled again. Well, as long as it's between zero and 100, you guys are good. It's a percent. Yeah, as long as it's between zero and 100, that, that's where it's supposed to be. Now, I may not be an engineer like my father. I may not be studying engineering at the undergraduate or graduate level like my older brothers were at the time, but I do know a thing or two about math. Yeah. Between zero and 100, that's pretty much what a percent is supposed to do. But this one is going down. And I'm fairly certain if it hits zero, we all die. Worse than that, we fail our mission. And Team Von Braun gets one step further ahead of Team Gagarin. Mission Control may have decided that failure is an option today, but not me. No, sir. Now I'm running around the simulator like a puppy who's lost his favorite toy. I'm snatching up every scrap of information I can find that I can see. Our instructor is really trying hard not to laugh. What was the first thing you do when you came aboard? What, what was the first thing I did? I switched our power from batteries to solar array. Did I do something wrong? Was I, was I supposed to do something first? I went back to my binder. I looked at that first procedure. No, I, I did everything right. I, I remember these steps. But those goody-goody two-shoes from Team Von Braun were aboard before us. And some of them didn't quite finish all their tasks. Is it possible? I turned to the last page of my binder, and there it was. Deploy the solar array. Well, if the guy who was supposed to do that didn't do it, that would explain our problem. I quickly, frantically typed in codes to the computer. All the while, our power level was dropping. 30, 29, 28. I entered the last number. 100. Yes! I did something right! At this point, our instructor was laughing. Yeah, he had about one more minute, and then I was going to turn the lights off. No, there was never any real danger. It wasn't real at all. We were just a bunch of teenage nerds and geeks acting out our own little Star Trek, like the actors on the television screen. But you know, crew of the Enterprise, they make a lot of mistakes too. They fail every episode. But that doesn't stop them. They throw around a bunch of technical mumbo-jumbo, they come up with a new plan, they analyze what goes wrong, and eventually they come to a solution. Even at the worst of times, when Scotty didn't have enough power, or when he didn't have enough time, he always came through for Captain Kirk in the end. But then there was that Next Generation episode. Oh, Commander LaForge, you didn't tell the captain the right amount of time, did you? How do you ever expect him to think you're a miracle worker when you tell him the right time? Thank you very much. <laughs> Susan Lang is a holistic nurse and founder of the Alliance for Art, Healing, and Adventure in Greenland. The Alliance is based on three guiding principles of love, action, and wisdom, combined in equal parts to help transform human suffering and elevate individuals spiritually. She has studied the healing practices of South American indigenous healers, Chinese energetics, Japanese Reiki, and Hawaiian medicine, 
and she has created a workshop that combines a shamanic process for inner guidance with jewelry making skills. Interesting. The story of her mishap occurred while on a trip to Maui 13 years ago. Susan was invited by her friend Lee and his girlfriend to go sailing on his catamaran out of Maalia Bay. Her story is about the mishaps and adventures on that catamaran. As it happened, the catamaran capsized. They were taking on water and caught in the ocean current when along came a mother whale and her calf, which leads to the title of her story, The Whales Will Save Us. Susan, come on up. Interesting. Thank you, everybody. Um, all the time that I've spent in Hawaii, I have Hawaiian friends that like to invite you to come over to talk story. It's one of their traditions. So, um, because the story does take place in Hawaii and on Maui, I thought that I would just mention that. Um, unfortunately, my family's not here, but I did want to apologize to them because I didn't tell them this story because it did involve me nearly dying. So, and there are actually a few other stories. But <laughs> so in the spirit of the story, it begins with my very first job as a psychiatric nurse. And I worked in a locked up unit working with teenagers, preteens and adults. And most people never see the things that I've seen. Kids that are depressed or suicidal. Um, kids that are cutters or bipolar, manic, multiple personalities, uh, sexual abuse, drug and alcohol, and full-blown addictions um, as, as young as 14. Um, so the hospital that I worked at trained me in a program that was called The Journey, and it's called The Necessary Crises of Adolescence. And it's about a 40-hour program, and it's steeped in indigenous traditions as well as Joseph Campbell's work, The Hero's Journey. So it had things like mask making, rites of passage, guided imagery, uh, rock climbing. And one of the things that was probably uh, the most moving and effective was the, the journeys that we did with the kids. We actually taught them how to go in and do journeys and go in into a deep, relaxed state and um, allow imagery to come and to inform them. And that really transformed these kids. And the psychologist, the psychiatrist, really saw the differences in kids. And so I was very intrigued with shamanism at that time then. And so I decided to go to Ecuador. And I studied and stayed with some indigenous healers. My very first trip, I actually stayed with a family, a shaman and his family, for, for like three months. And of course, my first encounter with indigenous healers was with the Shua, who are headhunters. And um, meeting the shamans there, we, we would do ceremony, we did ayahuasca ceremony. We got really immersed into their spiritual practices. And um, this, these one tribe, um, who do take heads, or who did take heads, um, the, the shaman would describe it, and you could see him light up and talk about it. So I've never met anybody in this life who's ever done anything like that, but it was, a very, it was very much a part of their practice. And it, kept, it was a, a population thing, it was a rite of passage, there were all sorts of reasons why they would take a head. And of course, I was held hostage by these people. And of course, that's another story for another time. Um, so fast forward 15 years, I, I go to Maui. I'm invited to do a presentation and to teach some courses on some of the healing modalities that I've learned. And I met a man by the name of Lee who invited me to go um, sailing out into Mahale Bay, which if anybody's been to Maui, it's, it's a beautiful bay and you have the West Maui Mountains and you have the Haleakala and, it's, and then you can see all the other islands when you're out in the bay, and it's just absolutely stunning. And so the day that he asked me to go with he and his girlfriend, we, um, the day was gorgeous. It was absolutely, it was just beautiful, and it was a light breeze, and it was a little catamaran. And of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, Lee has done this before, and it's a catamaran, so they, they don't flip over. So it's such a beautiful day, so we go out and we're gently moving out into the inner part of the bay and it just all of a sudden gets really still 
and very, very quiet, and we're not moving at all. And we're just right out there in the middle of the bay, and we're just looking around, and nothing's happening. And, and we're just feeling the goodness of being out there in the middle of the water and just really enjoying this. And then there's a slight breeze that begins, and we can feel it coming. And then all of a sudden, this breeze turns into a gust of wind and does capsize us. We totally are flipped over. And in slow motion, I see myself going over, and I hit my head on the mast. And then the next thing I know, I'm under the water and then coming up and getting myself back onto the catamaran. And so the three of us are now managed to get up, and then Lee kicks into to to gear right away. We start yanking on the ropes, we're trying to right it. And we're doing everything we can. We, you lean on the other side, you get on the other pontoons, you're pulling it, and, and nothing. We cannot, we cannot for the life of us pull this out of the water. And so at this point, we just sort of have to, we, well, we do have to give up. But then in the distance, Carla's this scream, she sees a boat coming out of the harbor. And so, and you know, it's very small, and you can see it coming. So she takes off her shirt, and she starts waving it and screaming. And then it starts coming, it's getting bigger. And then all of a sudden, it starts veering away, and it's going over to the other side of the island. And at this point, now we're really desperate. And of course, we know that we're in a current, and now we're really cold. The seas are really choppy. The pontoons busted, and they were cracked, and they were taking on water, and we we're sinking. And we're just getting lower and lower into the water. And of course, I look over at Carla, and she's wet, and she's freezing. She's panicked, and her teeth are, are chattering. And, and Lee's just sitting there in a fog. And, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> Lee said, you know, I think this is the same place that two people drowned last week. It was a couple, a husband and wife. They were expert sailors. And so I just like to, nothing to say. And so I, I'm looking up at the, the Haleakala, and all of a sudden I get this wave of peace that came over me and this calm and this quiet, and I feel sort of suspended, and I say out loud, that's okay, the whales will save us. And in a moment, we see a whale coming over towards us in the spout and starts circling around, and, and it turns out that it's a mother and her calf, and they keep going around us, and they go under us, which is really eerie and a little bit scary because there's nothing between us and these huge animals, these tremendous animals. And so they keep circling and breaching and flipping their flutes and just doing everything that whales do. And it just was this huge display right in front of us, under us. We were, like, we were right there. And, of course, in the, in the distance again, now Carla sees the boat coming towards us. And so she starts screaming again, and she takes her shirt off and starts waving it. So the boat keeps coming, and it keeps coming, you know, and so now it, it, it's, it sees us, and we're communicating, and they realize that we're in distress. And so the captain gets on the bullhorn, and he says, we're going to rescue, you know, the Coast Guard's going to rescue. Hang on, we'll stay here with you, and they're going to send a boat out. So, okay, so this is, this is good news, right? So we're, we're, we're able to deal with this. And then you can see, again, you can see the Coast Guard ship coming out of the harbor, this little dot, it gets bigger, and then all of a sudden, it too starts to turn and goes back into the harbor. And then you know, we have no idea what's going on. And then the, the boat that had come closer, as we realized it, it was the Pacific Whale Foundation, whale watching boat that had come to us. And it was curious because it had seen the whales. It, it had no idea that we were in such distress. It thought we were kayakers. We were so low in the water. So the captain gets on the bullhorn again, and he said, well, the Coast Guard can't make it out. The seas are too dangerous. We're going to rescue you. So a helicopter appears in the, in the midst of all of this, and it's whirling around, and there's this massive amount of noise, and it's adding to the crashing waves and all of this confusion. And, and the, the, the captain said, just follow our instructions. And so they, they said, just, uh, so we had to decide who would go first. And of course, Carla would go first, because we really, she was probably in the worst shape. And so they throw the, the lifesaver, this red and white, beautiful lifesaver, into the water. And Carla jumps in, and she can't grab it. 
she's, she just can't get a hold of it, so they have to send somebody else in to, to pick her up and bring her out and before she drowns. And then they, they send me the, the lifesaver, and I jump in, and I, I go for it, and I grab it, and then so does Lee. And we end up uh, um, on this Pacific whale watching ship, and Lee is begging the captain to help him write his, his catamaran. And the captain clearly says, no, we're, we're saving your life, we're not saving your boat. And, and Lee had, again, just had pleaded with him, and he said, well, just give me one go. And he said, okay, well, I'll give you one go. So Lee tied this rope around his waist and flung himself in the water and went over to the catamaran, tied it, and within a minute, he popped up, a thumbs up. The captain pulled the rope and righted the catamaran, and honest God, it looked so battered, it was wet, and I, and I realized that I probably looked the same as this poor catamaran. And, um, and then Lee jumped on the catamaran. He did not have his dagger board. It was damaged and wet sails and rough seas, and he made it back, and eventually we made it back as well. We had another hour on the whale watching ship. So we, we went on the tour to watch the whales and the dolphins. And the whales stuck around. They, they put on a nice performance, if you like. So I think that the thing that... Um, there's the most important thing to me is, is this um, experience that I've had as I've been being more exposed to shamanic practices, but this thing that we all say is that we're all connected. And I do believe that this happening to me, that the whale saving me, is one of the greatest truths that I think we forget is that we really are all connected and that I truly was saved by the whales. So, thank you. Thanks, Susan. That's a nice way to end the show, uh, or the storytelling portion of this show. And thanks to all of tonight's storytellers and to our studio audience for a great night. Coming up next, we will have that interview by David of Susan. But first, let me give you a little information. True Tales Live will be back here on Tuesday, November 28th with the theme of What is Home? Uh, as far as I know, we still have two slots available for that, so if you are interested in being on that show, please contact us, truetaleslive1, just a number, at gmail.com. We've also released our 2018 themes. They include overcoming, what was I thinking, it could have been worse, and coming of age, and more. So check those out, they're on our website also. If you would like to tell a story here at True Tales, but are unsure of yourself or want help crafting your story, we have monthly storytelling workshops that are free and open to everyone. They're held here at PPMTV, 280 Marcy Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, the next one, they're, oh, I'm sorry, they're from 7.30 to 9 p.m., and the next one is November 7th. Watch us on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. and anytime as video on demand. You can go to youtube.com and search for PPM TV True Tales Live. Let's thank some of those who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cortner. And until our next True Tales Live show, on behalf of all of us here, I'm Amy Antonucci, and I thank you for listening.